I'm Jamie Smith. I've been working in games for over 13 years now. Um, I'm currently working for People Can Fly as a principal game designer. Um, but in previous roles, I've been working for Ubisoft, Electronic Arts, Activision, on a whole bunch of different games, mostly in the open world kind of genre, um, including the division, um, you know, the, the crew for Ubisoft, and then more recently, uh, Call of Duty Vanguard with Activision. Um, but yeah, as I say, it's been maybe nine shipped kind of AAA titles in kind of 13 years. Um, so I've been working on big teams, especially kind of cross-discipline, uh, cross-regional, cross-language you know, barriers and things. Uh, because the one thing I've noticed is that as games are getting bigger, the teams have also become more diverse and kind of spread out as well. Jamie, so I, I think the next question kind of comes directly uh, out of the what you just said. So what is the role of the game designer in a, in the current AAA uh, game, and um, I can so let's take Ubisoft as an, an as an example, right? So Ubisoft is one of those companies where they introduced like the the like systems uh, uh, gameplay, right? Which we which they has been reused in a bunch of different uh, franchises that they're uh, building. Um, how do you how do you feel about that? What's your role in there? And overall, what do game designers do on these big, uh, enormous games? The couple of different answers, but the the main one in terms of a designer is the designer's ultimately responsible in helping bring the the, the director's kind of vision to life. Um, they don't do that in isolation. Uh, they normally think of it a bit like they're the cheerleader for the goals that you're kind of working towards. And working alongside a cross-discipline team to kind of achieve those goals. Um, another way I normally describe it is if you think of it like an orchestra, the designer is the one that's the conductor at the front. They're trying to get everybody playing on the same kind of page. Um, but in terms of a systems kind of point of view, I always think of this as just that a system is effectively a series of rules, and those rules are working towards a given feature. Um weapons could come under a systems kind of feature, for example, lots of different behaviors that contribute towards the feeling of the weapons, the satisfaction of those weapons, um, the balance of those weapons, you know, the damage values and the reload times and wherever else it may be. But ultimately it's a, um, it's more of a systems thinking mindset tends to be much more analytical thinking about things that can be repurposed or reproduced, something that's really flexible for designers to kind of control. Um, easily maintainable is another one as well, especially in a post-launch scenario. You're looking to build features or systems that are um, almost like a foundation for what you're going to do kind of post-launch. And that feeds into you know how you can come back and kind of improve those things over time. You're effectively an architect of you know so- something that eventually can get built upon in future. Tell us a little bit about um, kind of like in European, what are kind of modern successful AAA open world games that have great gameplay, like from your perspective, touching both on the, on the systems, but also like on the, just kind of like the fun of it. And then out of this comes kind of the next question is like, why, right? So why do you feel like these games are, are great. The, the obvious one for a lot of people, they would say, would be something like a Zelda, Breath of the Wild, Tears of the Kingdoms, a very systemic kind of game, a lot of emergent gameplay, 
lots of interesting kind of rules that kind of collide with each other. But the reason why I said lots of people would normally say that is because my, my choice would probably be something like a Yakuza Zero. Um, it's an open world game. It's a much smaller scale. It's very kind of character focused. It's all about improving the stats of your character, um, forming part of mini games. But the most important thing, especially with Yakuza Zero, is um, it's all kind of movement based. You don't teleport around the map. You don't, you know, jump on a horse. The map is quite constrained. But the amount of depth that they get within that such, you know, small, detailed kind of environment is something that's pretty much unmatched kind of in any other game in the AAA space. Uh, for me, games are tending to get bigger and lots more content. Um, this is much more constrained, tighter experience where everything that you do in the game contributes towards the character regardless of whether that's you just exploring the streets and kind of chatting to people. Um, it has some combat in the game, but the combat can tie into the mini games. The mini games can tie into the character progression. The character progression can tie into the story. Um, but I think that, that that feeling of lots of different systems that piggyback on top of each other and mean that everything the player does is kind of meaningful in terms of improving their stats um, as I say, I, I think it's pretty much kind of unrivaled outside of, you know, the really big games like Zelda. That's um, it's an interesting take. And I want to kind of carry this uh, idea of kind of like big and uh, small and ask you this question. So um, first of all, can you tell us um, our audience, maybe somebody doesn't know this, like about the 40-second uh, rule that exists in the open-world uh, design. Like, what, what does that mean? And how does this rule kind of influence the, the designs that we currently get? So uh, when you say rule, I wouldn't necessarily say it's a rule, but there's general guidance that um, within every so many seconds that the player should either do something or see something that takes their kind of interest Um if you did that every five seconds, maybe that's too frequently to kind of come across a combat encounter or some kind of loot pickup. But 40 seconds, um, if I put it differently, two things that you have to be mindful of when it comes to open world games is the size of the world and the speed of the player. And those two things create a time. So if the world is 100 meters wide and the player moves at 10 meters per second, that means that they can progress uh, 10, 10 meters within that particular time. Now, when you progress that onto a much larger world, when it comes to 40 seconds, the idea being is that every 40 seconds at the player's average speed over a certain distance, that's how dense the world should be in terms of its content. So every 40 seconds, if you're moving at 10 meters per second, which is extremely fast, um, that means you're going to encounter something every 400 meters within the world. That in itself means you're going to have an extremely large world and the world is going to be dense of, of a certain amount of content. But that 40 second rule is just to keep the player engaged kind of moment to moment so that they don't necessarily just have to push the stick, the analog stick on the, the gamepad in a straight line to get to where they want to be. You want something to either divert them off that path or kind of distract them from that kind of monotonous gameplay. You mentioned monotonous gameplay. Do you feel like uh, when we're when we're doing the size thing, and I, I know size is kind of relative to like the speed that you're moving through this world, um, but um, do you feel like this pursuit of like bigger worlds, you know, larger, you know, encounters, over the top, you know, everything? Um, do you feel it kind of ruins a little bit of the open world gameplay design, or maybe it's just kind of like 
for every segment of the market and user, there's just a different game. And I, I, I wouldn't say the word kind of ruined, but I think the good news is that we're probably already over the hump of what the biggest kind of game worlds could potentially be. Um, you get things like No Man's Sky or Starfield that feel like they're infinite in kind of size. And equally, you know, some of the biggest Assassin's Creed games already exist, you know, both, both on land and on water. Um, for me, it's always about just as long as it's a meaningful kind of session for the player. If you're going to play two hours of a game and you can barely scratch the surface, you know, within that two hours, I'll make a meaningful difference to maybe the city or the location that you've kind of been playing within. Then that for me tends to be kind of too large. If, if you have to teleport everywhere over the world, which means that you're going to skip out on lots of handcrafted kind of content, then that would also suggest to me that the world is kind of too large as well. Um, but even the Yakuza Zero example I mentioned, you're always on foot. You can get everywhere you need to be and you come across kind of content often. The, the, the risk when you make a world too big is you have to populate it full of content. Too much content doesn't necessarily mean that you're satisfying the players kind of need to play the game. Uh, too much content could be interpreted as you have less chance of finding the good stuff because the world is so big and there is so much content uh, to, to discover. Um, so yeah, sometimes removing things from the game world or making the game world smaller tends to be a better experience. You you talked about Yakuza, um, which is a kind of like a, it's it's coming from a Japanese developer, um, and I started thinking about the Japanese games and one of the recent ones I'm actually playing it's an old game but i'm still playing it is the latest dragon quest uh where um it's it's kind of like this it has the same approach as you describe it it's not big it is kind of limited so it's not really an open world even like it's just a bunch of level connected by a map that you traverse but it's like it's so packed with these little details. It's so packed with these little bits and pieces that um it's almost alive. Like you walk around the city and it's like it's alive. I don't know. They, they, it doesn't mean that people go to sleep and then they wake up or do it or something. But you just walk around and there's like situations or like cats or, you know, some secrets. And it's very simplistic. Like at the, at the top of it, it's super simplistic. Some people might sim- say it's even primitive, but once you get into it and you kind of, you know, put in the hours, it's just, it's so well made and kind of walking around this Japanese trajectory and talking about open world. I cannot not ask you, right? About what do you think about the way that from software approaches? Uh, their games and how did how well did they do with open world in Elden Ring because that that for me is a kind of like a beast of its of its own in a way Elden Ring could have been one of the examples I chose earlier as well when I mentioned Yakuza but um so Elden Ring tends to be for me probably one of my favorite games as of as of this moment it's probably in my top three I think the the main difference especially when you look at that compared to Dark Souls is Dark Souls to me, feels like a very elaborate kind of hub and spoke world where you start in one area, there's a there's almost like a bike wheel of kind of choices connected by linear paths that eventually will eventually circle back around and lead you back to that. Um, the real danger of going into a big open world game, and especially the way that they did it in, a, in Elden Ring is, um, normally you don't want to put the player in the center of the map 
And the reason being is that you can move in any direction, you know, up, down, left, right on the diagonals, which means that you have a very good chance of coming across an area that you shouldn't necessarily kind of go towards. And that's something that they tried to do in Elden Ring, where they're trying to put you slightly towards the bottom kind of left corner of the map um, so that you're going kind of outwards, but you can't go kind of backwards, you know, the opposite kind of direction. That, that That's the first thing to kind of keep in mind, especially when it comes to that. You'll, you'll see that in Fallout and things as well. They'll always place the player in a corner of the map, so you're always facing outwards, so you can't go um, into various other directions. So that, that was a good one. Um, but the the amount of traversal time kind of across the world in some areas and the sparsity of the world, especially in the area, the, the earlier areas of the game, it actually makes it feel much more approachable. Um, so go back to the kind of the 30 or 40 second kind of guidance. I don't think something happens in some areas every 30 seconds in Elden Ring. But when something does happen, it always feels much more memorable because it's much more infrequent, uh, kind of that way. Um, especially the uh, the early area when the dragon kind of drops into the world, the slight spoiler if anybody's not played that. But that's a once in a, a game kind of moment that if you'd have had a combat scenario within seconds before that, it might have dampened down that situation. Or you might have been concentrating on the combat rather than concentrating on the dragon that flies in. So that, that's pretty cool. But eventually, they, they have the same problem in most open world games, and you'll see this in the final third. Is uh, the first one is that you almost always have to teleport everywhere, which is why they're so generous with the sites of grace and the bonfires all around the world. And the other one is in the top right hand corner. Uh, that's where the mountain of the giants kind of area is. It's it's very uh, kind of rocky area. That is one of the biggest sections of the entire game in terms of land space. But also it's the biggest section of the game where it's not traversable land as well. And you can always tell that's a classic thing in open world games is it's probably one of the last areas that was built, but it's been made in such a way so that it's not really that traversable. It, it maybe takes a quarter of the map, but it's, uh, you know, it's only a small fraction of what you can actually traverse and, and navigate. Um, yeah. And that's a typical thing, especially in open world. You get to the end of the game. You don't want to populate the, the world kind of too much. So you can build mountains into it or things that are non-traversable kind of areas. Uh, but in general, I mean, as a first attempt at a truly kind of, you know, what you might consider a proper open world game, I, I think it was pretty good. Um, but yeah, you can also see the the kind of the areas that they could have improved kind of further. You know, that was one of them, maybe making the world smaller, but making more traversable kind of areas like that one w- would have been a better solution than a bigger area that's not traversable. Um, to kind of like to add to that, um, we, you think about it that uh, you said like Demon Souls and Dark Souls; those are where, although like for me that that is open world, but it's actually it's kind of like what whatever they showed, like it's like a spaghetti of levels, kind of like going into this funnel, and it's so well connected that it gives me a lot of vibes of these old, uh, older, like 16 bit or even eight bit, uh, games where it's kind of like they were limited in terms of what, what they could do. So they tried to connect everything. And it was like, that was the beauty of kind of like the constant discovery, uh, that I had in those games. But now if you look at it, almost every, every other game is open world. And my question is like, why does, why do users like it so much? I, I feel like, developers in this case almost follow the market right because the the demand is like they if it's not open world it's kind of like people feel like it's kind of not exciting like it's not 
even like if you look at like Final Fantasy VII or even the Dragon Quest, me myself, I was a little bit disappointed that it was kind of like too linear and so on. Like, why is this happening? It's like when you think about it, there's nothing wrong with having a linear experience. But on the other hand, I have colleagues at work who say stuff like God of War, let's say, right? The reimagining. They're saying, um, they're basically saying that this is too, it is too linear. Although it's, it's kind of playing around with this concept of open world and it gives you kind of like a better, you know, more freedom and so on. But they're, they're saying, no, it's too, too linear, so on. And, and my question is like, why is suddenly linear a bad thing? Like, why is good level design, which not, not necessarily has to be linear, right? It has, it can be imaginative. Um, why does it like secondary to like, let's have an open world and everything's, you know, accessible and so on? Yeah, I mean, I mean, it depends on what the experience is because you know, if you took something like The Last of Us or God of War, I, I don't necessarily think that they would be better games placed in an open world. And, and I think when people chat about open world, ultimately what they're demanding from that is a sense of freedom. I mean, that that's ultimately what it all boils down to is the cho- the choice that we all played the same game but we all experience it slightly differently because you went out into the left and I went out to the right and I chose the sword kind of character and you chose the, you know, the, the bow and arrow kind of character. I think that's one part of it. I think the other part of it is when it comes back to kind of open world games, there are some very specific learnings, you know, even that guidance you mentioned earlier, that starts to become almost like second nature and it's almost like you're designing an entirely different type of game because some of the rules might go out the out the window um if you have a linear game typically you can guarantee that the player is going to see something within their kind of view cone because you you created a path that means it's going to lead them that way open world design you can't guarantee that the player is going to go in one given direction or experience something in exactly the same way um or in some cases it makes it feel like that you know going back to the thing i said earlier I can experience something that you, you know, I can experience something and maybe in the first 10 hours of the game that you don't experience for hundreds of hours and so on. So p- people having these different kind of memories and different stories about how they experience stuff means that you don't have to rely on a traditional narrative that everybody experiences mostly the same way in this particular case, you know, the, the, the world is whatever any, any given player kind of makes of it. Um, but on the flip side though, you know, I mean, outside of Elden Ring and maybe Breath of the Wild, you know, Tears of the Kingdom, I don't really know if there's as many top tier open world games recently as there has been kind of linear games. Um, and at the same time, you get the best of both from Sony, where you're getting Ghost of Tsushima and you're also getting Last of Us. You know, they're both kind of contributing towards slightly different audiences. So I don't, I don't necessarily think one way or another is kind of bad or good. I think there's different learnings from both and they both contribute towards different experiences. And ultimately that comes down to agency, you know, player agency and freedom. I think it's a, it's a great um, comment about um, freedom and uh, kind of like a little bit of a storytelling sort of like that you get into it. Right. So I remember when uh, Red Dead Redemption 2 came out and everybody uh, started sharing their stories. Like I went, that way and I met this character I met that way and I met that character and do you know that there's like dinosaur fossils or you know like to, and, and so on and so forth so like everybody had these stories and it created this 
idea that this is just this game is just immersed like so big like it's it's just crazy it's like the the whole united states sort of like in in, in one package and uh, another experience i have like i'm speaking about sony like uh I got access through, I think, PlayStation Plus. They they give 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 you access to free games, and most recently there was a game called Generation Zero. Oh and, yeah, yeah, um, Avalanche. Yeah, from Avalanche, and uh, I think it wasn't very successful when it launched. But uh, and it's like it, it's technically, I think it's not like the the you know the best uh, experience you can have. But I've been playing this game. On my own, like I'm, I'm, I'm not, don't have a party or anything. And I was just, um, I was just amazed. You know, I was soaking this in because it's like you're walking around basically Sweden alone and there's some, you know, you, you fight some robots, but mostly you're just like walking around this beautiful scenery and you, I can even, get cold like i feel cold when i walk around some of those areas so that game is absolutely amazing and it's humongous like the the world there is crazy but if you take it bit by bit it doesn't seem that bad so the the character can run and there are some vehicles so you can traverse it pretty quickly but i'm i absolutely loved it and one of the reasons why i loved it is because it gave me I think it gave me more time to just reflect, right? It didn't bombard me with kind of stuff every 40 seconds or whatever, uh, like the, you know, the, the general rule is. It's like it, it gave me some time to just walk around, you know, soak in, kind of explore these mechanics. Cause sometimes in, um, something that comes up is maybe like guerrilla games, uh, the, the, the recent, uh, Horizon Zero Dawn, where it's like a little bit too much. It's a little bit overwhelming. And um, that is my, um, n- not my gripe with, but uh, kind of like one of the maybe bits of feedback that we can give to these uh, kind of games is like sometimes it's too much. Like even like the, like speaking about Avalanche, like they also made the the Mad Max game, uh, which was also stellar. It's like, again, it's not a very flashy product it's not it doesn't have like a a lot of very you know varied art and so on but it's just it's it's done so well this is one of those few games where i upgraded everything to like the 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 lost um upgrade so um my question to you like do you think that uh like you mentioned we're kind of like over this hill where everybody wanted to do everything as big as possible and, and so on and um we will have some kind of like a change in the way the design of these games is made. Do you think that there is a change coming? What kind of change? And uh, how are these games kind of like mutating into a different sort of experience now? I mean, going back to the, are we over the hump? I, I, I mean, I certainly hope so that, that we are because especially from a triple A, just pure investment and kind of content perspective, the bigger the world gets, the, the more content there is. The more, again, go back to what I said earlier, the more chance that the player can come across the things that aren't kind of showcasing the experience very well. Um, I do like the Mad Max kind of example because I've been playing that myself recently. And go back to the player experience, that's where it always comes down to is if you want to make a game that's set in a big open world desert and it makes it feel like that that, you know, that, that base in the distance feels like it's going to be dangerous, 
then I think the player needs to just be left alone, taking the desert, taking the sandstorms, you know, make their own way over to that um, kind of castle or that fortress, let them approach it in any way they kind of want and don't kind of have anything in between that kind of distracts them from that. In some areas, you do get the bandits that kind of come out of nowhere and, you know, Red Dead Redemption has scripted kind of events that will appear within proximity of the player, but that, that that's one, and one side of it. And the other one is just when you go back to the Zelda kind of example earlier, um, Zelda and Yakuza are two different examples, but interesting. The Zelda one is they took a lot of things away from what you might consider t- typical kind of open world tropes. Um, they just let you discover things on your own. They let you go in different directions. There is a lot of repetitive kind of content. You know, they do have the, the dungeons kind of cloned everywhere. But in general, removing content from the game just means that the player can kind of go at their own pace, which is pretty cool then to discover the areas that are more dangerous. And then the Yakuza kind of example, again, is is the way I would hope that games go, which is almost everything you experience in Yakuza, you can experience it on foot. So, you know, it, it, it's it's not a horse kind of ride kind of game it's not a fast travel kind of game um you can experience everything and it's probably of a higher quality because it's a much smaller scaled game and even when we call it open worlds just like you mentioned earlier with a slightly different example is that it's not necessarily what you would consider open world i think open world people expect it's a giant kind of country or it's a massive island yakuza is about you know two two or three kind of main roads and a couple of kind of side streets and that's basically the game but but everything that you find within that tends to be high quality varied kind of content um on a very condensed kind of scale and the other cool thing that they do is they introduce content based on the narrative so some games you will climb the tower and then the tower will tell you everything within a 360 this is a game where you can only access the content up until chapter two when you complete chapter two now chapter three four and five's content now becomes available to you so the content is almost you know it's almost like a waveform sometimes it expands and sometimes it contracts um you can do the natural thing of just leave everything till the end of the game if you want um but in general i think they're two different examples in the sense that condensing the world and having high quality content or in Zelda's case, removing content from the game, both seem to elevate what other games are already doing. We'll be back after a quick break. Ever thought modern video games should be more interesting? At the Gaming Blender, we take randomised genres, mechanics, and make a new game every episode. I've added permadeath. We have a survival game of a hardcore simulation, which could be House Flipper, and with the permadeath of XCOM. Then that owl has to be an action adventure. Yes. Ooh, dear. Yes. And sometimes it doesn't quite work. And you you have a construction off over the course of the of the narrative. A construction off. The <laughs> way the way we can do this is that we ditch your idea entirely. Entirely. Check out the Gaming Blender on all your favorite podcast platforms now. Uh, Jamie, I kind of want to combine two questions into one. I have a, I, I've shared this question with you before, like a question about the hook and uh, what makes you uh, play this game. But I want to kind of connect it to some kind of example. And uh, I have two examples. Maybe you can uh, comment on them or, or feel free to add your own. So I have uh, two games that I, I, I love, but I I 
fail to explain to myself why did I finish them. <laughs> so the one that I uh, on one side I have the I think the dredge. It's like this fishing simulator. Uh, also kind of like o- open world, a little world, and you walk around, like maybe there's like five or six islands or something, and you on a small boat, and you upgrade the boat, and you go around. And the other game is Death Stranding, where you, you do you do nothing <laughs> much but kind of deliver packages to, to people with an occasional... Um, but both of those games, for me, were like they, they're like, I can just sit with my wife and torture her with stories about those games for like hours and my, my question is like why do you think this happens what is the secret kind of like gameplay hook that uh keeps you coming back or keeps you remembering or like creates this connection between like the the game and the gameplay and and your own experience that could be lots of different things i mean the classic example in years gone by was you know what? What's the new thing that Mario does? So, what's the new mechanic that this game has introduced in terms of a grapple or wherever it may be? And I, I think games have kind of moved away from that now and tend to be more on the world or interesting things that you can find. But to speak to those two examples, because Dredge is probably up there for one of my games of the year, I think a really important one. It's not necessarily a hook of the game, even though it is a fishing game. So there's a cool pun, uh, but it's a small scale game where. I think you cannot see everything the game has to offer until you complete it. That can't be said for a lot of open world games. In a lot of open world games, normally you might invest 10 or 15 hours into the game. There might be 100 hours worth of content, but the chances are is that you've seen everything it has to offer within those first 10, 15, kind of 20 hours. And I think that's an interesting hook for Dredge is it's a five or six hour game but it's always surprising you because something always happens. And, you know, normally it's mission-based, so you go do the mission, but then something interesting kind of happens. You think that you're going to talk to somebody who's a friendly character and they turn out to be an evil character. They send you somewhere where you think it's kind of safe, but then it's not safe. So I I think that's one interesting one on that side. And for for the other one, you know, for Death Stranding, I haven't played that kind of too much, but that, that has the opposite problem to me, which is, I do like the hook of the traversal of the environment. I do like the hook of the the social kind of interactions. You know, the, it's it's a divide and conquer kind of approach across the world. And I think, you know, much like I said with the open world games generally, even though I didn't put a lot of time into that game, I do feel like I've seen a lot of what it has to offer so far. But the social kind of side of it, the the, the idea that you just need to navigate from A to B and that be a challenge I'm not too sure there's many games that have done that before outside of, you know, Mud Runner or, you know, Spin Tires or something, you know, something really mundane where you just have to drive from A to B with some cargo. It's effectively, you know, the platforming equivalent or the, you know, the third person character equivalent of that. Um, Yes. So, so, you know, to summarize those two examples is one of them is the content kind of always, always surprises you. And then the other one is it takes something that people take for granted and then elevates it beyond a standard that hasn't even been matched. You know, it hasn't even been attempted, never mind matched, in kind of a third-person kind of AAA game. That's um, kind of like a perfect segue into my uh, next question. Thank you for sharing your thoughts. Um, we talked about a lot about kind of like the, I think the world building, the design design aspect of it, the, the, the form, right? But um, 
I think one of those lessons we all learned from Mario is uh, the way Nintendo crafts those games, so that they create some mechanic, and then they create a level to fit that mechanic. And and, and the the magic of those games, like there's like every level is like so different because there's something else that this character does, and it's like it's never you you never expect what's around the corner. Like it's always some kind of surprise, and that's what's kind of like the the beauty of this comes from. So. Is it form or function? Like, what comes first? Uh, what do you think is happening in the in the card market? Like, do we still have uh, innovative mechanics that you know keep us engaged, or do you think the focus shifted to you know cutscenes or like fancy you know landscapes or stuff like that? Like, where where do the two kind of come together and? Feel free to talk, talk about from your experience, maybe something that you like, or, or overall, like how do how do you balance the two so you you don't have basically a lot of stuff that is just boring and repetitive and not interesting. Yeah, I mean, when when it comes to the function, I mean, ground up is the way I would kind of describe it. Is you come up with a cool mechanic for kind of Mario. It feels satisfying to just run Mario around in a circle. On Call of Duty, the classic thing is it always feels good to miss. And the reason is, is because people miss more often than they kind of land shots. So I think that's always important. Whatever you're doing most often, that always needs to feel good. But more on the form side, to, to me, I think of that as more the top down kind of approach, which is, hey, this game is Mario in space, or, you know, this game is Call of Duty, but now you're in the jungle or the desert and wherever kind of that, you know, that might entail and kind of the experience. Um, I, I would always prefer the function because I think a game needs to be immediately kind of satisfying. And we're at a point now where the visuals of games, you don't really need to sell them in screenshots and magazines anymore. You know, it's it's not a fight for kind of graphics anymore. Every game looks, you know, pretty stellar on the latest kind of platforms. Um, so to me, it's always got to be if you're if you're on Game Pass and you've got 500 games to play, which is the the the, the typical number that's on that platform, and you've got 90 minutes per day, which is the average amount of time that a player has to play a game, it it, it should feel good. I mean, it should feel immediately kind of you know fun, responsive, satisfying to shoot things wherever it may be. So I, th- I think for me, it always comes function first. But then the other side of that is when it comes to repetition. If you think of something like Destiny, six or seven years old at this point, it still feels good to shoot an enemy in the head seven years later. And that is no mean feat to to kind of achieve. That's extremely difficult to do in in kind of any game, is to have a game that feels ultra repetitive, but it still feels satisfying after seven years, after you've headshotted thing for the millionth kind of time. Um, Whereas I couldn't say that with the visuals. You know, I don't think I would be sticking with the game for seven years because the landscape looks interesting or maybe there's some changes in the environment. At the same time, for variety's kind of sake, when you look at something like Genshin Impact, that's exactly what every single season is built around is kind of changes to the world and additions to the landscape. Or Grand Theft Auto, me and my friends will jump back in at two weeks over Christmas because snow has kind of come to the world. But that's not the reason why I'm sticking with the game years and years later it's because you know the game ultimately feels good in your hands moment to moment i think you nailed uh i think you nailed it here and some of the examples that comes to mind i think some of the games we discussed i mean uh, bungie definitely i mean they are um um they they know some kind of a secret 
I think this is a studio that's very close to like Nintendo and understanding like what's where the fun kind of lies because uh, my experiences with the Halo franchise are like are unmatched even like uh, speaking about Game Pass like I downloaded this uh, Halo Infinite and I just start I, I I don't know if it's but I think it's not Bungie it's like the 343 uh, but it's the, like the the gameplay I can just play it forever because like every with every session like every encounter something goes up it's like the helmet flies away somewhere or the body or like the grenade kind of like explodes in some weird manner or it like pops down in my head and like it's like one of the you can see from the energy coming from me that this is the kind of game that I can spend you know hours with and it's just going to be entertaining no matter no matter what kind of graphics or no matter the kind of like stuff is going on. And the same goes, I think, to, again, this is all often kind of like omitted uh, about The Last of Us Part Two, because everybody is um, concentrated on the whatever the story aspect or the, the heroes or like what's going on with the characters, which is, which is great. But I don't know why doesn't anyone talk about how great of a shooter this game is like like if you think about like the impact and how satisfying one or thing that's that's just like it is crazy how good the ballistic system is is in that game how the impact is done in that game like all of those things are unmatched i haven't seen it like in any other title where it's done as uh as good and then it it kind of feels like this is a secret sauce sort of like to, to, to give our podcast a little bit of a, of a, a little bit of a conclusion. Like you do want to have a very good solid mechanic. If you're lucky, you might have a, a couple at the core of your title and then you can, you, you can build whatever, you know, out of it and create a game that's gonna, if again, if you're super lucky, they can work for, a number of years and you don't really have to change much it's except for maybe you know the scenery here and there create some content and then i think this is like where the the master of the game designer is like in crafting those uh, bits and pieces of gameplay it's all a kind of acquired knowledge as well because i think i think sometimes people uh criticize something like a super mario 64 you know, 25 or something years old, they talk about the camera being a bit problematic in places. And maybe it is, but at the same time, that that game 25 years later is probably still better in terms of the platforming than some new company's kind of first intent because Nintendo had been doing it for 10, 15, 20 years at that kind of point. And I think that's another side of it is iteration as well. You know, I'm not too sure that people would class Uncharted as a top tier kind of shooting game, but at the same time, The Last of Us 2 must be one of the top three third-person kind of character games around just in terms of the fidelity, the animation, the feel of the interactions, the contextual kind of side of it. You know, if you if you walk too close to fire and the character's kind of putting their hands up towards it, um, there's a lot of little details like that, that, that definitely because it's a single-player game and definitely because it's typically a, a linear kind of game, they can put that time into those kind of details. Um, I'm not too sure outside of Metal Gear Solid 5, 
or Death Stranding, if that kind of detail has been put into an open world game for a character and, you know, the, the feeling of the, the transitions between multiple states, the contextual kind of side of it, but uh, definitely those are probably the, the top two premium kind of characters that exist in games, both for linear and kind of open world is Kojima Productions and, you know, Naughty Dog. They're, they're setting a super high kind of bar that I think it would be difficult to attempt, never mind kind of even reach. So kind of like we're, we're almost out of time and I want to uh, wrap up and uh, as usual, I have two questions kind of wrapped into one. So my, my, my first question is like, um, we've talked about game design so much and obviously it's a, it's a very exciting topic. People have a lot of opinions on it for sure. Like if you go in any, uh, uh, any forum or anything, people can teach you about game design there, but how does one actually, uh, become a game designer how does actually one can try to do something like this like do, do you do you feel it's a if it's action maybe it's a it's a good idea to just start uh, playing with some prototypes in unreal or unity if it's uh, some other type of content maybe maybe you can do something on paper and just not you know if it's how do you recommend approaching it like what is the way to do it and then the same question if you're a studio if you're a small studio and you're not kojima you're not naughty dog you don't have hundreds of millions of dollars to spend but you do have some ideas and you want to create this mechanic that's kind of like gonna unite it all how do you approach it like what, what's your maybe what's your ritual like how do you want to do it like what are maybe some frameworks that you could suggest i think they would be very valuable especially for somebody who is an interest in in design that this may be somebody who's in the industry it may be somebody who wants to be in the industry a really basic version that people would chat about is jump into unreal engine follow the tutorials make a prototype maybe host that prototype on itch.io or you know your own personal website or something I, I think that's one part of it and that's demonstrating what i would consider as your technical skill or your understanding of design but i think for me it comes more about um an evaluation of things that are on the market the more analytical skills as to you know go back to destiny or the the halo example why does the gunplay in those games feel so good compared to any of the other 10 competitors that are kind of up there? You know, you've got Halo, Destiny, and Call of Duty. Outside of those, I think everybody else is not on that kind of level in terms of the quality and why. And then just being able to describe, you know, maybe it's the feeling of the weapons, maybe it's the way that they do the haptics, maybe it's the audio, maybe it's the way that the bullets ricochet off the walls and you see the kind of the bullet marks persist. It might be the dead bodies that persist in the world. There's a whole bunch of things that kind of contribute towards that. But as I said earlier, normally what it comes down to is the thing that you're doing most often feel satisfying and the thing you do in call of duty most often is you miss you you don't hit things you people tend to miss every three and every four shots why am i still playing destiny seven years later if i tend to miss most of the time and i think there's something inherent to that and that that people could kind of break down i think that's one side of it another one is general kind of tinkering or adjusting kind of a rule set um so a really classic example if you play Worms, it's a side-scrolling kind of 2D game where you have a team of characters and you shoot each other. There is a custom mode within that where you can rebalance when certain items become available, what kind of buffs those items have, 
uh, where they tend to land on the map, you know, and how often. And those are just minus t- tweaks to what people might consider kind of really rudimentary forms of modding. And then basically you can help to rebalance games or create patches, you know, on Steamworks and things like that. So that that's pretty good. And ultimately, I think when it comes to an interview, that's the type of thing that people are going to ask is, how your mind kind of works. Do you like to break down a kind of game? How can you demonstrate to others why one game is better than another? And also showcasing that in terms of a demo is pretty good. But let's say that you're a, a, a small team and you want to try and make the gunplay as good as Call of Duty or you want to make a platforming character that's as strong as Mario. That would be my first step is exactly what I've just mentioned is, is to try and understand why these games are so good. Um, even testing it the other day, because I was actually playing Mario 64 just, just last week, is in Mario Odyssey, there are lots of transitional states that don't exist in Mario 64 whatsoever. You can do jump, jump, dive, hat throw, bounce off the wall, hat throw. You can do this crazy kind of combination of stuff. Mario 64 puts a hard stop on certain kind of actions in the game, which means it severely limits what the character can do and also severely limits the level design as well, because it has to be built kind of around that understanding the limitations that that company was under at the time and now the benefits that they have, you know, Mario is probably an infinite kind of part of resources to kind of contribute towards that, but ultimately knowing why something works and why it doesn't work. And even that really basic example I mentioned is the expansion of the character's moveset is purely based on how many transitions that they allow the player to perform and kind of interact with each other somebody wouldn't necessarily know that unless they reviewed the two games kind of back to back. And then that becomes a question for the team is, okay, how limited or how expensive do we want to make our character? We only have one animator, so we can't make the, the moveset have, you know, 300 different actions, but we might have a moveset that has five actions, but they can all interact with each other in kind of interesting ways. And then basically you're accounting for the production kind of aspect of you know you're not bloating production with tons of animations but also you make an extremely creative for the player because they have five actions and they can perform these in any kind of direction and you know any way to overcome a given challenge um but generally speaking um that, that's one side of it but also being mindful of your own limitations as well um i've been on some teams kind of previously that want to make the gunplay kind of as good as Call of Duty, but they sometimes might not necessarily put the foundations in place or set up the groundwork. That means that it's flexible for designers to kind of change or post-launch, you know, they're locked into something where the guns have a certain type of balance. There's a whole load of stuff that, you know, these games are doing that they're, they're setting really strong kind of foundations. And the way that you'll know that if you've done something well or not is if it feels good to move Mario around in an empty room, if it feels good in Call of Duty to kind of shoot and miss, then you probably know you're onto a winner at that particular point because things can only elevate from there. And it's it's why you always see training modes in Call of Duty to test the weapons out. It's also why in Mario games, you always start in a big open area to basically play with the character and to see what they can do in a, in a risk-free environment. So yeah, test, test arenas or test gyms, as we might call them. Um, just making sure that that stuff is tested in those scenarios as well. Jamie, thank you so much. I, th- I would love to continue this conversation for another hour, but uh, I know you're pressed for time, me as well. Uh, thank you so much. It was wonderful talking to you. Um, we'll leave the links to the description to your website so people can uh, maybe shoot you a question if they have some. And uh, yeah, overall, thank you so much. Uh, no worries. Thanks for your time. Thanks for enjoying another episode of the 80 Level Roundtable podcast. 
check out upcoming episodes on the 80 Level website at 80.lv. Join our career site at 80.lv RFP and share our podcast with friends and on your social networks.